0: Well, again, we're very thankful to have with us Mark and Cheryl Hatfield. Um, Mark is the pastor of Beijing Baptist Church in Beijing, China. And uh, this is, I think, our fourth year of having Mark and Cheryl with us. uh, It's their home for the summertime. And uh, always very thankful to have Mark preach for us and always blessed by what the Lord does through his ministry uh, to us. So, brother, please come and, and bring God's word for us this morning. What difference a year makes. We thank God for you guys. We know you can't support everybody, but you can support some. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Just here in caps, thanks. Thank you. It means a lot. And I remember, Nick, it was actually in the spring of 2013 that prospectively we're, we were going to China and we were together at the GA in Bremen. We got a chance to speak and I think we talked about prospectively us coming and seeing you guys. Thank you for being there at the beginning. At the beginning, thank you. Cheryl and I are just really thankful for your your partnership in the gospel and your friendship and we keep working at your names. I'm still writing names down as I meet meet you guys. In fact, I just, Gary reminded me that um, it's not Melissa, but Melissa, and I meant to write that down, but anyway, we're just so happy to be with you guys. We will be in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you want to turn there this morning. You know, every sport, every sport has boundaries of sorts, whether it's a court, a field, a course, even a pool, there are, there's a place where it's in bounds, and there's a place where you're out of bounds. And you know what it's like if you've ever hooked or sliced a golf ball and your ball has hit a cart path that's paved. And when it hits that, it, it gains some seems how somehow it seems to gain speed acceleration and then though you were aiming for the green on the 6th fairway you you end up on the 12th fairway and that wasn't your plan and you in effect are out of bounds on the 6th hole and if a ball or player is out of bounds there are serious implications Sometimes, you know, in soccer, for example, you can't use your what unless you're the goalie. You can't use your hands. Just recently in the Copa Americana, I think there was a handball controversy between Chile and Bolivia. Hands, unless you're the goalie, are out of bounds. Games and matches fall and rise how the boundaries of sport are refereed. Think of Wimbledon. Who enjoys tennis or yeah, okay, you're watching Wimbledon. And if you've ever watched the championships, you realize that each match is carefully refereed or umpired by a set of linesmen or lineswomen who make an instantaneous call on whether the ball has hit the court inbounds or out of bounds, or whether on a serve that ball has just ticked the top of the net. All right. It's a fault, and the, and the server needs to serve Again, it's a big deal, and so it is with our sexuality. And I know pastors from China are not supposed to preach on sex, but I thought it was easier that if you, if we had a problem with this sermon, me going back to Greenville was easier than getting kicked out of Beijing. So I thought I'd bring it to you this morning. All right, and in First Thessalonians. Paul addresses this topic of sexuality straight up, directly, no apologies, in the most plain language. If, in fact, this letter was one of Paul's first, which we think it was, if not the first, then this is really the first apostolic expression in in the scriptures Concerning sanctification and how it intersects our sexuality. Okay? So first, let me ask a question. What is sexual immorality? What is it? In Greek, it's this word porneia. It's the root word for where we get pornography. If you could translate that straight, it would be sexually out-of-bounds, or immoral writing or pictures, right? When you think of pornography. But this word here that we're going to get to in First Thessalonians 4.3 is porneia or sexual immorality. What is it? How do we provide a biblical response to that question? And I want to give you a definition of that this morning, a working definition. Sexual immorality is any out-of-bounds word, thought, or action with respect to our sexuality. And by out-of-bounds, I mean what God would not sanction. Genesis Especially these first two chapters would provide the details of that sanction. You don't need to turn there, but I want to give these to you, okay? The details, five elements of God's ordaining or sanctioning legitimate sexuality. Number one is that God has created us as sexual beings, God has created us, He's created you and me as sexual beings. It's undeniable. And as a very brief application, I I meant to add this at the end, but I want to give this to you right now. Moms and dads, you are those persons that God has ordained to provide a framework for the sexuality of your children. Do not delegate that. Be very, very careful about that, It is for you to provide that framework for your children. So God has created us as sexual beings. Parents, God has given you, you children who are little, growing sexual beings. Second, therefore God has given us sexual capacity, which is to be expressed, listen to this carefully, first... Only and wonderfully within the bonds of marriage. First, only with the bonds of marriage. One man and one woman. And if you would say, wait, I've already messed that up. Like, you don't know how bad I've already messed that up. Praise God, that's why we glory in the cross. We glory in the cross. The third detail of God's sanction of our sexuality is this God has blessed us as sexual beings who possess sexual capacity. And I think for just a second, turn to Genesis 1. All right? God's blessing in Genesis 122 and 128 is spe- specifically as a as kind of a little preamble an introduction to the fruit of their sexuality. He says, Be fruitful. God bless them, and God said what? be fruitful and multiply multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, this is verse 28, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It is in our sexual capacity, God creating us as sexual beings with sexual capacity, it is in that place that point as sexual beings with sexual capacity, that God has adequately, wonderfully blessed us. There's no embarrassment by the true and living God with respect to our sexuality. Indeed, he's given it to us. A year and a half ago, I gave our daughter Kristen away in marriage. And I thought in that moment that I'm giving, when I'm giving our daughter, I'm giving her in this capacity. When I put Kristen's hand in Brent's hand, I was giving them, giving her to Brent in that capacity. So they might love one another as image bearers of God with sexual capacity to be fruitful and multiply. Fourth, God's word provides us the essential framework to understand and live out our sexuality in a manner pleasing to him. God's word provides that. God's word is not a sex manual, but it is an adequate framework to understand and live out And express legitimately our sexuality. And then fifth, the fall has spoiled and corrupted human sexuality like everything else. And it's only by the cross that what's been spoiled and corrupted is ultimately redeemed and restored and given its proper place. And so you can say it this way. In marriage is an application of this, because I don't always like to leave applications to the end of a sermon. Sex is not the ultimate satisfaction. But because of the cross, because of the creator that ordained and sanctioned and instituted us as sexual beings, and because of the redeeming, powerful work of the cross, Sex in marriage can be joyfully and wonderfully satisfying. Okay? Sex is not the ultimate satisfaction that's reserved for God and God alone. But sex is ultimately satisfying in the shadow of the cross. Now, I want to take 1 Thessalonians and kind of warm our way up in a a minute from 1 Thessalonians 1 to arrive to our target passage, which is the first eight verses of chapter 4. But first, kind of a historical context, a brief history lesson. You should link the book of 1 Thessalonians, as when you think of Paul principally as writing it, but accompanied by two people, two men. Do you know their names? Silas and who else? Paul, Silas, and who else? Does anyone know? Timothy, And you link it with Acts 17. Paul wrote two of his first letters to the church in Thessalonica in the early 50s. And as a reminder, Thessalonica is in modern day Greece, where the very northwest corner of the Aegean Sea meets the landmass of Greece. And in Paul's second missionary journey of almost three years, imagine this, three years and 3,000 miles, mostly by foot. Three years, 3,000 miles. He founded the church in Thessalonica with the aid of Silas and Timothy. And the whole story is recorded for us by the physician historian Luke in Acts 17, the first nine verses of Acts. In fact, turn there, if you will, just for a few moments. We read this in verses 2 and 3. For three consecutive Sundays, or on three Sabbath days, it says Paul went into this synagogue there in Thessalonica. There's a synagogue of the Jews, as verse 1. Paul went in, and as was his custom, I guess what apostles did, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. From the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And God blessed his work. Just think about this. Three Sundays, June 5th, June 12th, June 19th. Imagine that. Maybe they're in Thessalonica for less than three weeks. And you'll understand in a minute, right? Right? God blesses their work. And it says, some of them were persuaded. Joined Paul and Silas, as it did a great many of the devout Greeks, and I love this, and not a few of the leading women. Okay? But Paul and his cohorts met this very intense persecution, particularly the house of Jason. And they received this most grave charge of all that they were acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there was another king beside Caesar, that is King Jesus. So they had to leave the city under the cover of darkness. In fact, they basically shook these guys down. If you look in verse 9 of Acts 17... So they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They took these new Christians, shook them down for some cash, and and under the shadow of that, these guys by night sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, 50 miles to the west of Thessalonica. The Bereans gave them a better reception, but these rabble-rousers from Thessalonica, some of these Jews that were so upset with Paul and his cohorts, they chase him down, gave him such a difficult time that the brothers then sent Paul off by sea to Athens. Though Silas and Timothy remain, and they have fruitful labor at Berea. But there were still these seeds here, 50 miles east in Thessalonica of a church, Over just over three weeks. It's amazing. It's it's a great lesson to us how quickly the word of God can sprout up and bear fruit. But the church was young. And so Paul sends Timothy on mission back to to Thessalonica to see how the infant church was doing. Timothy pours into that church and he brings back a good report to Paul while Paul is in Corinth. And that's the context Paul is writing 1st and 2nd Thessalonians from Corinth, maybe A.D. 51, something like that, very early in the church. And then maybe three weeks later after 1st Thessalonians, Paul even writes his second letter. So just a couple of things I want to point out as you look. Now turn to 1st Thessalonians, just hold that open before you. God dramatically and rapidly saved a foundational seed of people for himself in Thessalonica. It's very evident from Acts 17. Second, Paul was forced out of Thessalonica so quickly that he experienced more than this normal amount of anxiety for the young church there. You know what it's like when you visit someone and your visit's coming to a close and you've realized there was all these things that you wanted to talk to them about and you're like needing to talk a little bit on, like we were in the car, Nick and I were in the car this morning. I was like, Nick, there's so much I want to talk to you about tonight. We didn't talk about it last night. Like a hundred things. I think that's how Paul felt. So he had this anxiety for the church there. And then, so that's why Timothy went to Thessalonica as a gospel co-laborer for the apostles. And then more than any of Paul's other letters, if you'll read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they're just pregnant with so many references to God, Jesus, and the Spirit. It's like Paul saturates, it's like he sprinkles, you know, when you sometimes you're cooking and you know, I think I should stop adding pepper. He just he sprinkles all these letters with the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, it almost seems a little bit overdone if you were to, if you think, I think I'll critique these two letters. But that's significant and that will prove important as we come to his exhortation about sexual immorality. And then finally, look how Paul both affirms and exhorts the church in this letter. If you're looking at chapter one, they were remembered in the apostles' Prayers with thanks for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. As we come to chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He is not writing to a church that he's expressing annoyance with or a lack of confidence. This is a church that he's given great, a great sense of affirmation. But he addresses this area of their sanctification straight up. He speaks in verse 5 of chapter 1: the gospel came to them or to you, okay? It came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says in verse 9 that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their reputation was known throughout the world so that in verse eight, he says, you guys became an example to all the believers in Macedonia in Achaia. That's in verse eight. If you look at 1 Thessalonians, these five chapters, I think it's fair in terms of its structure to think of the first three chapters as Paul's personal reflections in verse, chapters 4 and 5 as his practical instructions. And unlike Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, where Paul lays a kind of theological foundation, a substructure below the surface of theology and then builds on that substructure, his applications, the outworking of that theology, 1 Thessalonians is a little different. It's like Paul is going down memory lane and he's very much affirming them. It's not that he's not infusing and weaving his theological perspective in it, but it's more of personal reflections of his relationship with them, God's work in their lives. And then he comes to address just a few very specific topics. One is this area... Their sexuality, another in chapter four, verses nine through twelve, will there be their love for one another, their willingness to work, to work with focus, and that relates to the next topic from four thirteen on, that they not be too preoccupied with this coming of the day of the Lord, that they have to live very much in a sense of between the, the already but the not yet. Now. Paul, no doubt, had great concern for their spiritual welfare. Look at chapter 4 with me. I want to read these first eight texts, these these first eight verses. Finally, then, brothers, it's like a preacher when he says, and finally, coming near the end, and he preaches for 20 more minutes. I'm not doing that. I'm reading Paul's finally. Okay. Finally, then, brothers, we ask, another way to translate that is we request We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Another way to translate that is your holiness. That you abstain from, From sexual immorality. That each of you know. Each one of you know how to control. His own body and holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust. Like the Gentiles. Who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother. In this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us. For impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I want you to observe in these first two verses, five little elements. Number one, there's the spirit of appeal by the Apostle Paul. There's actually not an imperative. The imperative is implied. He says, it's the language of request and suggestion. OK? Now, it comes with an authoritative basis, because he's just spoken of in the end of chapter three or the end of verse two, you'll see that he says, "We've given you these instructions. Through the Lord Jesus. And by that he means in the name. And in the, by the authority of the king of the church. But he still has the spirit of appeal. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, you see the power of example. That as you received from us. How you ought to live. Okay. And the word for parents there is that we model biblical masculinity and femininity. We model what it means to live as redeemed sexual beings to our children before it's ever time to tell them about that sexuality. They observe it. They see it. Third, there's this clarity of instruction. He says, for you know... He says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then there's this most worthy goal. He says, how you ought to live and please God. Look, we understand, right? When you're on, if you're putting a 60 foot putt, everyone understands the goal is to put the ball in the bottom of the cup. So the glory of God is that ultimate goal, even of our sanctification, but the language, the way it's couched in is the same way when we golf, if, I'm, if I've got a 60-foot putt, my eyes, I'm trying, actually, I find a mark, and I'm trying to put that ball to some point with the goal because I've lined up that point, that blade of bent grass with that cup 60 feet away. And the, the whole, the ultimate goal is the glory of God. But the target is couched in this language how we are to live and please God. That's the most worthy goal. The fifth thing is this affirmation of progress. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And I love this, this wonderful tension. is Paul is saying, we affirm you guys for your faith, your love, and your hope. But affirming someone in their walk is not mutually exclusive of addressing a very specific area in their life. And Paul does that perfectly. He models that for us in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it's the build-up for our text in verse 3, and for, the matter, for that matter, verses 4 through 8. And Paul will now address this most important topic of sanctification or holiness but specifically in the area of sexuality, okay? This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, all right? Number one, God's will is clear. Here's, there's just a few points. God's will is clear. We are to progress in our sanctification. We are to grow in holiness, Holiness is an expression. We speak of just progressing in our sanctification. And we don't have to wonder about what God's will is. If you're like me, so much of life is uncertain. So much of life is uncertain. But in this, God is clear. He wants us to progressively become more and more like his son. And without apology, that's even in this area of our sexuality. And so secondly, specifically, we are to abstain from sexual immorality. That is, any out-of-bounds sexual expression in thought, word, or deed. And I want you to hear me. It's not sex which is off-limits. In fact, a whole book of the Bible, Song of Solomon's, celebrates the beauty of human sexuality. It celebrates it. It rejoices in it. Okay? It's not sex, which is off limits, but sexual immorality that's forbidden. Paul does not say abstain from sex, but abstain from sexual immorality. God has ordained that our sexual capacity as sexual beings... Be first, only, and joyfully expressed in the covenant bond of marriage. God created sex. If you will, He delimited it by saying it's in the context of marriage, it's for the sake of pleasure, it's for the sake of procreation, it's for the sake of protection. That as we rejoice in one another in the bonds of marriage, legitimately, we fence off our marriage in that way. Okay? But I love his language. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. It's funny. You ever see a sign, uh, don't touch, wet paint? Does anyone, is anyone ever tempted to touch the wall at some point? Okay. (laughs) You're just like, you want, I don't, what is that about us? You know, what is it? Like, I know I'm not supposed to look at a welding art. When someone's welding, you're not like, supposed to stare right at it. But just one time, I would like to get a good look. Just one time. If I knew, there would be no consequence, right? Paul says, don't touch sexual immorality. It's amazing language. Abstain from it. When you and I think about saying, we're like, we think of, uh, I'm not going to have any ice cream this week. I've had it every night the last week at 9 o'clock at night, and I know that those 400 calories at 9 o'clock at night is a terrible idea. So I'm going to abstain from ice cream. So Paul is saying, abstain from it. It's there. You can reach out and touch it. But God has so ordained your sexuality that in every word, thought, and deed, it is to be prescribed and limited wonderfully for your good and his glory by the word of God within the bonds of marriage. Third, I want you to see the threefold dimension of this obedience. And if you've never seen this, I think you'll get excited. Sometimes it's discovery. Look at this passage carefully. First, with respect to God... Our sanctification is his expressed will. And if you look back at the end of chapter 3, you might notice that Paul is saying more and more abound in love that your hearts might be established in holiness. Then he says, as a very practical expression of God-ordained holiness, don't abstain in sexual immorality. It's amazing. Because he's affirmed them already for their love. And he says, keep abounding in love that your hearts might be established in holiness. And here is a very important and legitimate expression of holiness that you not touch. That you abstain from joyfully in living out the gospel, sexual immorality. So first, with respect to God, the threefold dimension is... We affirm sanctification is His expressed will. He is so ordained that every one of His sheep be perfectly conformed to the image of His beautiful Son. Second, with respect to themselves, each of the Thessalonians was to know how to control his own body. You can say his or her own body in holiness, in honor, in direct contrast to the Gentiles as those who did not know God, who lived in the vortex of the passions of their own flesh. They didn't express their sexuality in a Godward manner. It controlled them. The self-control as one of The fruit of the one fruit of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is not exclusively directed towards our sexual expression and capacity. But certainly that's a big area, isn't it? Okay. And lastly, besides how this threefold dimension of obedience is expressed with respect to God, with respect to ourselves, it's expressed with a responsibility to our neighbor, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, Paul says, and solemnly warned you. Okay, When you think of the ten words, the Decalogue, the ten commandments, and you come to the seventh commandment, it serves as an umbrella word, a commandment for our sexual fidelity, our sexual integrity. The word is, you shall not commit adultery. But it's broader than that to this whole term of saying where Paul would be writing to the Thessalonians, abstain from sexual immorality. And then Paul provides this final motivation. Look in verses 7 and 8. He said, look, here's the thing. Your sexuality as as a very practical expression of your sanctification, of your progress in holiness, is lived out as part of your calling. And this is your calling. God has not called us, he says, for impurity, but in holiness. And he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, that is, the essence of that calling does not disregard man, even me, as I write this, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay. What are the implications of our passage? Here we go, real quick. Our sex Just four quick implications and then we'll apply it. Our, sexual- our sexuality is lived out in the reality and the shadow of the cross. Have you ever thought it'd be easy to think, what does sex and my relationship with Jesus have to do with each other? But Paul actually, he's, his whole prologue here, is he thinks about God establishing their hearts blameless. This is chapter 3, verse 13. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Our whole sexuality is lived out in the reality and the shout of the cross. Okay? The cross is real and has implications always for every area of our life. And that includes this very important area. Second, there's something we don't do. There's something we abstain from that is sexual immorality because there's someone that we have. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Christian, let me, let's get this right. Okay? Our first lover is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our first lover, he's our ultimate lover. Third, what God gives, he sanctifies, he redeems the ordinary. It doesn't matter if it's work. Marriage, sex, the Lord's Day, learning, it doesn't matter. What, he, what he's given us to do, what he's given us to possess, because of the cross, he redeems it and can sanctify it. And the same with our sexuality. Our sexuality is never to be isolated from three things. Okay, I want to, real quick, the implication. Number one, our humanity I know this is weird. (laughs) But when your children are born, if you're a guy, your wife just gave birth to a little sexual being. And that's why dads and moms, it's important that you, and not the internet, and not someone has no sense of the word of God, provide the framework for their sexuality, okay? So number one, our sexuality is not to be isolated from our humanity. Indeed, it's part of our identity. He made us male and female in that capacity, blessed us. Secondly, from Christian community, this is the place of accountability, right? Someone said, Chinese proverb, dig your well before you need the water. If you're already thinking you're over, you're in over your head in this area, it's a little late to be getting an accountability partner, but it's not too late. You get the difference? Go now. It doesn't matter. And then third is don't isolate your sexuality from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought that on the cross that our Lord Jesus bare in his body on the tree your worst sexual sin and mine, whatever it is, what you're most ashamed of that you've done, that was most out of bounds, not just on the line, way out of bounds. Think about it. Think about it. Don't divorce, don't isolate your sexuality from King Jesus and his work on the cross. Now, to apply this, number one is begin with Jesus. The whole book of 1 Thessalonians bleeds the Trinity. But it's especially significant to note that Paul says in, in, in 4.3 that the instructions on how to live and please God were given through the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Do you know that a yard is a monoculture? Have you ever thought about a lawn? That's the problem. A lawn is supposed to be a monoculture. That's why some of you that golf, if you get on a green sometimes, you want to pick at weeds. It's instinctive. But it's weird because most of nature, most of what grows is never a monoculture. All right? When Paul says... This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What he's advocating for is a mono. Don't touch. He's saying, abstain from touching. (laughs) He's advocating for a heart that's first, only, and forever King Jesus. Someone has said that the way you grow grass, okay, the way to kill weeds is to nurture the life of your lawn, the grass that's there. And so you begin with Jesus. You begin with giving thanks to him. That's my second application point. Is beginning every day with this thanks to him, being distinctly and first a worshiper of King Jesus, having a mono heart, a single heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. No real progress in holiness ever was made without this continual aroma of gratitude, of not simply saying, but really believing, really, really believing that, God, you have dealt with me so far better than my sins deserve, even when my life is junk. And I'm hating my life today. You know those days when you're like, ah, life stinks today. I'm really struggling. I just need to get through it. You realize, oh God, you've dealt with me so graciously. And grateful worship is one of the key antidotes to resisting the temptations of sexual sin. If our eyes are fixated on his glory and the beauty of Jesus, our desire to gaze on lesser, lesser things will be greatly reduced. Some of you who hunts deer here, does anyone hunt deer? Okay, you get this. When you've killed a really big buck, like a ten-point, big-bodied buck, and he's on your wall, you can let a lot of bucks pass. Okay, because you know what you know what a big deer, a mature buck looks like you got to get your eyes fixated on the glory of Jesus if you want to be able to take your eyes away from lesser things. Another thing is choose purity. Every day, get up prepared to do battle. Reject the false promises of sin by repenting and believe the better promises of the gospel in faith. You know this quote by the English Puritan John Owen. What? Be killing sin or what? It will be killing you. You get the upper hand on this. Okay, you get it. In other places, Paul has said, by the Spirit put to death death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. Romans 13.13, he says, let us not walk in sexual immorality. And here's why. The sexual immorality from 1 Corinthians 6 will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's a very significant verse from verse Corinthians 6, 13. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord. In another place, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. It's interesting. He doesn't even say fight sexual immorality. You know what he says? Flee it. It's so dangerous. It's so toxic. It's so potentially lethal. If you have to pull out right eyes and cut off left hands, you do it. And he says in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, Ephesians 5.3. And then Colossians 3.5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. And why? Well, you look at the first four verses, Colossians 3. Because you've been raised up believer. You've been raised up. You're right there at the right hand of God. King Jesus, you've been raised up to heavenly places. Another application is to love considerately. Think of your sisters in Christ as sisters. This pursuit of sanctification always includes a concern for our neighbor. And it doesn't matter if it's a complete stranger or brother or sister in Christ. It grieves me that in Beijing on the sidewalk there are little stickers for prostitutes with their phone number. You can see their picture, their number. And you're thinking that's someone's daughter. That's someone's sister. And their picture's right there. And she's offering her phone number, her name. And it'll be every, tw- every 20 steps. They stick them in the middle of the night. There's her picture. And you walk 20 more steps. There's her picture. Another 20 all the way down the sidewalk? Should I not regard her as my fellow human being, not a sex object? Do you pursue this in thought, word, and action? Are you careful what you look at? It was Job that says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a virgin. Men, let me suggest you have another man with whom you can be completely honest about your sexual purity. And it's true if you're single or married. Get an accountability partner. Women, do you speak, dress, and carry yourself in such a way that's not designed to provoke an out-of-bounds response from another man? Do you carry yourself in a way that promotes their sanctification in yours? And then finally, know the Spirit's help. You can't do this on your own. It's, it's absolutely impossible. Sexual sin is just all too powerful. We know from Paul as he write, wrote the Corinthians that there's no temptation that's so powerful that there's not a way of escape ultimately. Okay? But God has given his Holy Spirit to us as a helper to bring to our remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught us. He's the one called alongside to render us aid when we're feeling the greatest heat of sexual temptation where we want, we're tempted to go very much not just to the line, but way over it. I want you to hear what Paul David Tripp says about the gospel in our sense. Because this morning, maybe you say, I'm not even a Christian or I'm just struggling so bad. Even this week, the week of June 6th has been terrible. I want you to hear what, what Paul David Tripp says. He says, the gospel declares that there is nothing that could ever be uncovered about you and me that hasn't already been covered by the grace of Jesus The gospel declares that there's nothing that could ever be uncovered about you and me that hasn't already been covered by the grace of Jesus. By his help and power, we can repent, we can turn to Christ, and we can begin a lifetime of growing more and more like Jesus Christ, even in this very area that we don't need. We don't need to act like it doesn't exist but to rejoice that God who's made us as sexual beings with sexual capacity can help us for His glory to walk in this way of sexual purity. May God give us grace to do that even this week.